Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Good evening, and welcome to The Interpreter Foundation Radio Show. Sponsored by the Interpreter Foundation, a nonprofit educational organization focused on the scriptures of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, early Latter-day Saint history, and related subjects. I am Bruce Webster, here in the studio with Martin Tanner and Chris Fredrickson on the phone, calling in from another part of the country. We uh, welcome you this evening. First first se- segment here, we are going to come follow me, and we're going to cover Jonah and Micah. Two very interesting prophets for two very interesting reasons. Let's start with a brief introduction on Jonah. This is a very unusual book in the Old Testament. Uh, It's quite different from just about any other book. Of course, there are a few that qualify that way as well. But you have this prophetic call to to go to Nineveh. Uh, You have Jonah swallowed by a whale. And then you have Jonah preaching and Nineveh repenting and then him being upset because they didn't things didn't get destroyed so that's I don't know if I want if I <laughs> stepped on stepped on the punchline here but this is this is an interesting book it is even within church manuals they recognize this was not first person account by Jonah this was written by someone later most scholars feel that this is sort of a folktale with a moral. This is sort of an Aesop's fable type of thing. Uh, nonetheless, we do have the Savior talking about the sign of Jonah, but uh, the but he was, he was speaking to the audience of his time. So let's, let's talk about Jonah and why it is so fascinating and why it is still so relevant to us today. And for that, I'll turn it over to Chris. Yeah, I'll, I'm just going to add in here a little bit of background on Jonah because it's, it is quite a fascinating book. And actually, I think I'll start with this. This is, um, I think, a really good description of what, you know, we do a lot of talking about whether or not these were actual people, historical people. But there's a really interesting comment in the NIV commentary. Because the biblical narrators were more than historians, they interpretively recounted the past with the unswerving purpose of bringing it to bear on the present and the future. In the portrayal of past events, they used their materials to achieve this purpose effectively. So it kind of suggests that, you know, whether or not Jonah was a real person, the, you know, life and events of his ministry as a prophet, nevertheless, it's extremely relevant. And I always personally, I think that whatever, you know, Esther is a good example, whether or not she was an actual historical figure, it certainly is located in, you know, a historical reality. Um, and they certainly draw upon the customs and the practices, and they oftentimes name the, um, you know, the appropriate rulers in those books. So, you know, Jonah is very intentionally, in fact, most of the books in the Old Testament are intentionally didactic um, in order to preach the very important message of basically general message of worshiping God and Jesus Christ and obeying them. Um, 
The other thing that I find quite interesting about Jonah is that it doesn't um, allocate a lot of um, uh, wor- uh, many words at all. Well, actually, pretty much none to actual um, oracles or prophecies. Um, there's not real prophetic addresses to the public. There's just a brief mention of he preached to the people at Nineveh and they repented. But there's no mention of what he pre- specifically preached to them. It's interesting, too, that this is the only of you know these 11 prophets here Um that um, and unlike Jonah, Jonah rebels against God, and he's actively opposed to the Lord's commandment that the Lord's going to give him. So this is most atypical of most of the prophets that we find in the Bible. Um, principal theme: many people suggest um, there's several themes actually that you can kind of look at, and that we'll probably explore here. But you know, I, I'll just focus on three. The first one is the power of repentance. So that repentance is real. That's one of the major themes. Um, And other people will say that the main issue perhaps is this conflict between God has a very universalist approach to salvation, and Jonah has very nationalistic tendencies, which is quite relevant in the world that we live in today. And then the third thing is that the book understands God. Um, The understanding of God here is sort of constrained by, by, you know, human finite minds. So we sometimes um, apply to God certain, that he holds certain beliefs, that there are certain practices that he engages in, but we're working from finite human minds that are certainly, our worldviews are certainly shaped by the society that we live in. When, when all is said and done, you know, God is God, and we need to trust him that he knows more than our finite human minds. So those are some of the major themes. Historically, it's an interesting time in history because this is a time when there's a little bit of a lull. Um, we have seen the Assyrians um, have um, the, the borders in Israel, Jeroboam II, he sort of restored Israel's um, northern borders, and they have a little bit of leeway where they are sort of gloating and they're feeling quite complacent. This is when Amos, this is when Hosea, Hosea, Hosea warns them, you know, that they are going to be exiled by the Assyrians, that they're going to be taken into captivity, but they're not really paying attention to that because they've had some military successes. And this is the same time that Jonah gets his talk, call to um, go preach to Nineveh, go preach to the Assyrians in the midst of all this conflict. And then, of course, the Assyrians will come and will destroy them. So those are just a few of the other things that we'll find as we study Jonah. And the other, I'll just say the last thing that's quite interesting is, actually, Jonah goes on two missions here, doesn't he? His first mission ends up being, and this is why I really like this one, His first mission just happens to be to a group of sailors when he gets on the boat with them, when he bears testimony of the Savior Jesus Christ, and with all that happens there, they seem to feel pretty strong conviction that there's something to this God of Jonah. And then, of course, he finally does go on that mission to the Ninevites, to the Assyrians. Martin, thoughts? The one thing I'll add here is that the story of Jonah has this major theme uh, superimposed over, over a minor theme. People who are listening or reading it would say, oh, man, I better be good because I don't want to be like the people in Nineveh. And and so that's the story to them. But then they also would read about this major theme, which is the conflict between God and Jonah. And there they mm-hmm. might see 
that God is willing to work with even someone who is rebelling against them. And so from a secondary position, whoever's reading this or hearing the story is saying, wow, if Jonah can do something wrong and and God will still take him back, you know, maybe I have some some kind of hope. And and, um, the last comment here is that the story of Jonah has some interesting translations. And the farther back you go, the earliest one we know now is from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And there are some anthropomorphic imagery about God. God is depicted very much as a person with, you know, anger and love. And he's, he's got all the, he's got the human emotions. Those have been sort of, uh, reduced and in many cases actually removed if you compare the earliest Jonah from the Dead Sea Scrolls with the Masoretic text and and the way it's come down to us in some of the translations of the Bible. So um, the earliest Jews didn't have a problem with God as a person, but the later Jews and, of course, the Christians who had inherited it um, absolutely did. One of the things I love about the book of Jonah is that it wastes no time. You have the first two sentences. First one's God calls Jonah, and the second one is Jonah goes and books a ship to get the heck out of there. It's like, I'm gone. <laughs> uh, and, and then a few sentences later, when when a storm hits and the sailors are worried, you know, starting to toss stuff overboard, Jonah goes down in a hole and, you know, curls up and goes to sleep or at least goes catatonic uh, until they drag him out and say, what are you doing? Literally, what are you doing deep asleep? Call out to your God. Maybe your God will listen because ours sure isn't. Uh, And uh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that he compresses a lot into a very small pace, um, you know, a very small space. I mean, it's compact, it's vivid, and, you know, there's character delineation, and you see different iterations of different people and, you know, different circumstances. So it's quite interesting, and, you know, Jonah himself is interesting. The fascinating thing about Jonah is he's the most successful, if we're talking about conversion rates, he's the most successful prophet in the Bible. I mean, he converts the people of Nineveh, and he converts the people on the ship. You know, there at least seems to be some... You know, okay, we're going to worship your God. And so he's very successful in what he does. But he wrestles with, I think, you know, a lot of the things that we wrestle with today and a lot of the challenges that we deal with. And as you jump into the text, we're going to see that. Okay, well, let's jump into the text. The It's it's nice that they ask him. I mean, one of the things I like to say, say, where do you come from? Why Why is this evil upon us? And he basically starts to act like a prophet. He says, you know, I, I worship the Lord God of the heavens who made the sea in a dry land. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, what are you doing? <laughs> what, what, what are you running away for? And and the interesting thing here, and, and this, this again is one of those little touches that's so nice. He basically says, hey, guys, you're going to have to throw me in the sea. This is all because of me. Mm-hmm. And first they pray mm-hmm. saying, please, God. <laughs> Don't hold us guilty for throwing him in the sea. We don't want to die. They've been trying to do everything else they can. Uh, and and as soon as they cast in and they, uh, the, the storm goes away and it says they feared the Lord greatly and offered sacrifices and made vows. 
the it, it's it's a interesting story in how the Lord can work through us even in our weaknesses, so to speak. Jonah certainly was an example to them, but Jonah was honest with them. He didn't lie to them. He didn't say, no, I have no idea why this is happening. You know, this is all just random. So he says, nah, it's my fault. You guys, you guys are going to have to toss me overboard and was willing, frankly, to sacrifice him for that. Chris. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when opportunity presents itself, he bears his testimony to them. It's fascinating. He's a prophet of God. I mean, he's a prophet and that's what prophets do. And so he's not going to fail in his responsibility to bear testimony to these people, which he is going to do. The other thing we see is we see quite a bit of compassion on both sides. They do not want to throw him into the sea, and yet he feels a responsibility to protect their lives. And so he says, no, no, I beseech you, you know. Um, Well, here it is in verse 14. They cried unto the Lord and said, we beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not upon us innocent blood. So they don't want to have to throw him into the, you know, into the ocean if they can possibly, you know, avoid it. And yet they are going to do that. And Jonah tells them, nope, you've got to throw me into the sea. I'm the one that has failed God here, and I'm the one that needs to suffer the punishment for my bad choices. Martin? Well, one of the fascinating points here is that the weather is affected by human behavior, by by Jonah's behavior. What one guy did, mm-hmm. it it is believed by Jonah and everyone on the ship, um, affects the entire ship and everyone else on it, which is a fascinating uh, story. Now, this does not seem at all unusual to the Jewish or early Christian readers, it seems a little bit incongruous, perhaps, for for some Latter-day Saints who would say, well, don't we believe we're going to be punished for our own sins and not for somebody else's? Well, why why would the whole ship be in danger of being, being destroyed? But setting all that aside, that's what the story says. The entire ship is in danger because of this one guy and 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 Jonah but he has sort of see, seen the light and decided that he's unwilling to have everyone else perish this is a selfless act and he's willing to go overboard to what he believes is going to be certain death in a storm somebody throws you over the ship you're just, you're not going to be treading water for long out in that location. And so um, he's going to certain death and he's willing to sacrifice himself. And that's one of the very first positive character traits that that we see in the book Um, from Jonah. We've seen one about the other people on the ship earlier because they're praying and praying and praying and trying to find any other way. But here Jonah becomes the good guy as well. The uh, chapter two, of course, is what happens after Jonah gets thrown into the water. And it's interesting for all that we associate Jonah almost certainly with three bellies and then, you know, whale. There's almost no narration here. It just basically says that he sent a great fish. Uh, the uh, uh, 
Hebrew there is indicating simply a sea creature. And, of course, we have the creature Leviathan, who's one of the creatures of chaos uh, and destruction and so on that lives in the deep. Uh, there's not an explicit call out to Leviathan here, but obviously it's something big enough to swallow Jonah. Hold him there for three days while the Lord keeps him alive. But you've got two narrative lines at the start, one narrative line at the end, and then you've got this hymn by Jonah, this hymn of thanksgiving, where he's mm-hmm. talking about uh, the whole event as if it were after the fact. In other words, this is something that, that appears to be actually his his poem in response to having been rescued from the belly of the great fish, uh, saying that the, the Lord flung me out there, thought, you know, Water lapped around my neck. Weed was bound around my heads. But you brought me back uh, and let me live. And and it ends with the saying, the Lord spoke to the fish. So, again, you have the Lord commanding uh, the uh, the beasts. And it vomited Jonah onto dry land. <laughs> that's it. That's the whole, that's the whole story. Uh, the, uh, the key here is that you have Jonah... In essence, his his first repentance, if you will, he's going to have a second one that we'll get to in the uh, next couple chapters. But his first repentance is like, you know, I I really messed up and I was in the deep and was drowning and was followed by fish and things were looking bad. And you rescued me. You brought me up out of shale. You brought me back to dry land. You made it so I could see your temple again and... It's a the, the 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 stricture here is is one of thanksgiving and repentance in the light of what we have done and the Lord ultimately delivering us from the consequences of the things that we have done. Chris, I um yeah I I, I really like I mean those are such great points. Um, and Martin, your points were really good on chapter one, too, because, you know, I mean, we have a tendency in our world to kind of look at any kind of natural disaster and we kind of try to apply sometimes man made, you know, consequences in consequence of bad choices that we're making with regards to the environment. But we see over and over in scripture the way that God can use nature for his purposes and does use nature for his purposes. So that's a really important point to kind of keep in mind here, that although many people have lost that sense in the world, it certainly was a prevalent theme with our Father in heaven. And then the other thing, just about what I would call, say, collateral damage for other people, if we look at the early history of the church, we see many people that suffered because of the bad choices of, of, you know, a handful or a few members of the church, that Restoration Church, where they were driven and they were punished, and many of them were righteous individuals, but they suffered in consequence of other people's bad choices. So those things are not unusual either. Luckily, in this instance, they are saved. The other thing that you mentioned, um, Bruce, that I thought was so interesting, you know, you talk about how he's vomited on dry ground, he's swallowed by the fish, which saves him. Then, of course, I mean, could it get any more propitious circumstances than this? It's almost like you would say, this is also inconceivable that it's, you know, such a neat little package. But you know what? When you look at personal miracles, modern miracles, you will see those kinds of things over and over again. I'll just give a short vignette. I was I worked at the Olympics in Munich in 1972. I was there working for um, UPI, which is like AP. It's a press service. 
So we were covering the Olympics. We could get into the Olympic Village. We couldn't get into the Athletes Village. But my sister and I, my sister was beautiful, and we had ways to get in. It wasn't hard for us. So we ended up in the uh, the, uh, the the dance. You know, we were we were you know where the the disco basically for the athletes. And we met a couple of athletes, and we were idiots, and we were young, and we ended up in. Um, Bavaria, where there was a party that they were going to take us to. And when we got there, we were the party. And so my sister and I said, no, we're not. And we're going to, you know, take us home. And they said, no. And we had no idea where we were. And everybody spoke German and I spoke bad German. So we were really in a bad situation. We said, okay, we're going to bed and we'll just find our way home in the morning. And then they danced into our room, not very well dressed. And so at that point we thought, okay, we've got to leave. And so we got up, we said a prayer, we got to where we were dressed. We aren't undressed at all. We stayed in our clothes. So we got up and we made our way down to the door and it was kind of an L shaped out to the street because the main entrance to the house was in the back. And as we got on the porch, we said another prayer and the prayer was heavenly father, please help us. We've done something really stupid. We're glad we've been protected this far. And as we made, so we stepped about three steps onto the sidewalk, made a right hand turn to the street. And as we came, you know, walked down that walk, all of a sudden we saw a car in the distance make a turn. And as they made that turn, they pulled up. And as we hit the street, a taxi pulled up right in front of us and the backseat door opened and it was an Australian journalist. And he said, what are you doing out here? And we said, well, long story. And he says, get in. Where are you going to? And we said, well, we've got to get back to the press village. And he dropped us right off at the door. Now, you know, that's pretty inconceivable, too. And, you know, this is just one of the million stories that many individuals could tell. And so, you know, those kinds of great miracles happen more often than we can possibly imagine, just like it happened to Jonah. You know, and then he is, you know, and then he is, of course, very contrite after what he has done. And it is, it's this beautiful, it's sort of, I read a commentary that said verses 3 to 10 are basically, they're sort of a pastiche of different verses in the Psalms. And so you can see that Jonah is very well versed in scriptures. Um, He composes this very sophisticated um, kind of prayer based on that pastiche that he has thrown together. You see the humility, humility, you know, um, because of what has happened to him. And and they're, they're just beautiful. They just read very beautifully poetically. And so that's what we get in 3 through 10. And it is a lovely recantation of, um, you know, um, what happened to him and our gracious father in heaven. That's a marvelous story. Martin. A couple of points. One, one of the major points, I think, of, of chapter 2 is that it's entirely in Hebrew poetic form. And mm-hmm. it entirely it entirely starts. Now, that's not... <laughs> it starts with this great overriding point at the beginning, you listen to me, Lord. I'm in the belly of this great fish, and you still listen to me. I've done all these dumb things and you still listen to me, uh, which I really, really like. That's such a wonderful point. No matter what you've done, no matter what precarious circumstance you find. And you know what, Chris, comparing yours to Jonah's, I'm not sure which was worse, more precarious, but, you know, I don't know. was pretty precarious. Yours was pretty precarious. Yeah, there you go. Mm -hmm. So so Mm – 
one last quick comment parenthetically about how realistic this story is or whether it's really true. And I'm not going to say too much about this except that you should feel free to have wide latitude on that point <laughs> because the point of the story was probably believed to be realistic and true by the ancient readers. Most modern readers might not believe so, <clears throat> but that should not diminish for any of them the important points of the story. But I had a polite debate conversation over the course of several weeks a few years ago with an atheist who said, this just proves the Bible could not be true and there is no God and yada yada because nobody gets swallowed by a fish or a whale and lives to tell about it. And I said, well, because this is in a, in a later conversation, uh, did you read the New York Post from June 12th, 2021? No, I, I didn't. What does it say? Um, well, here's one of the headlines. Cape Cod lobsterman swallowed by whale. Also earlier survived deadly Costa Rica plane crash. Live to tell about both. <laughs> well, Philly Voice News, uh, June 12th, 2021. They picked it up as well. New England uh, lobster diver was swallowed by a humpback whale. And he, he lived to tell about it. And it was also picked up by HuffPost, which goes to show, you know, they had the right and the left on the story. What bad joke mm -hmm. there. But but the point the point is that um, uh, the details are this guy, Michael Packard, swallowed by a humpback whale. And he was in there for several minutes because the people on the lobster boat were watching. And finally, it spits him back out. Now, I will. This is the point that I made to the guy. Who, who was sort of the, the atheist, and I said, you know what? I'm pretty sure Jonah didn't see the sun go up and go down, and he didn't have a stopwatch, and so maybe the three days is a metaphor for it seemed like a really, 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 really long time to me. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe this is intended to be three days like the Savior and crucifixion, resurrection. They're all whole bunch of things. But but the point is that um, ancient people saw this as real and it's meant to be a genuine harrowing experience and at least analogous kinds of things continue to happen to people today, not necessarily being swallowed by a humpback whale, but we all have our harrowing experiences. We all have our accidents, our injuries, our illnesses. Those are things that we need the Lord's help in to come back from. And prayer helps. It helped for Jonah, and that's the model for us. Now, in chapter 3, we have the Lord repeats the same call to Jonah that he had at the start of the book, saying, go to Nineveh and preach repentance. And Jonah does and basically says, hey, 40 days, you're all going to be destroyed. And then, you know, figures, okay, my work here is done. And the it says people of Nineveh trusted God and they called a fast and donned sackcloth from the greatest to the least. And 
the king himself, you know, covered himself in sackcloth and sat upon ashes. And, you know, everyone fast, even the, even the, the cattle and so on, and cover the cattle and, as well as people with sackcloth. And uh, maybe the Lord will relent. And, and, you know, here in the book it says the Lord saw their acts, that they turned back from the evil way and did relent from the evil and didn't do it. So this is, this is sort of like, you know, this is, this is kind of like, you know, thousands of missionaries, here's thousands of converts, you know, with preaching. This is, this is sort of Sons of Messiah type preaching and so on. And everyone converts and everything else. And so the chapter in and of itself is, is you know, pretty much an idealized missionary work. Now, we don't know of Nineveh actually converting a whole mass and repenting and enjoying things. In fact, as Chris pointed out for the time period in question, the the Assyrians were basically going around conquering various nations. But that said, the this is this is a big setup for Jonah because this chapter three starts says this thing was very evil for Jonah and he was incensed. <laughs> and, and 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 if there's if there is a key lesson here this is it. It's kind of like, hey, I told them they were going to be destroyed, and they repented, and I'm really hacked. Uh, the and I'm I'm reminded of a testimony I heard. And my gosh, this is all the way back, uh, probably my teen or college years. It was in my home ward, and it was this uh, man who was probably, I would guess, at in his time, maybe late 30s, around 40, and had come back to church after years of inactivity. And he was, in bearing his testimony, he said, you know, in the church, we, we have these tropes that we all accept, which is the rebellious teenager who, you know, sort of kicks against the pricks and then ultimately at some point repents, you know, late teens, early 20s, goes on a mission, does everything. He says, and everyone's fine with that. People are not fine with someone who basically does the same thing in his 20s and doesn't come back to church until his late 30s. Uh, there is a tendency, at least among some members and some people in general, to say, no, this is the way it has to work. If you did this, you know, why are you getting off easy? That's that pretty much seems to be Jonah's uh, complaint. You know, wait a second. I told them they're going to be destroyed, and you're not destroying them. Uh, and so we're going to get another great lesson here. So, Chris, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jonah is, he's upset. And I think he's upset because although at this particular period of time, you know, they have a little bit secured their borders. The Assyrians were the great menace during this period of time. They'd conquered another, a, a number of other countries. They will conquer and they will, you know, exile Jews. And, you know, we're going to see that, that this will be the end of Samaria and of Jerusalem with the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And so this is an enemy to be. And, and if you've ever been to the British Museum, who has probably the best collection of ancient artifacts in the world, um, you will see those base reliefs as you walk towards, as you would have walked towards the throne room of the Assyrians, and you will see horrific pictures of death and destruction. The Assyrians carrying it out against all of their enemies with 
and by the time you get to the throne room, you you would have been shaking in your boots because these people mean business. You don't pay attention to us. We'll gather up the people from the last city. We'll nail them to the walls of your of the next city that we go to. We'll put out your eyes. We'll cut out your tongues. We'll do whatever it takes. We will conquer you. And they were the power during this period of time. And so, and this is what you know is going to happen to the Jews, but it's happened to everybody around and to them in some sense already. And so, you know, this isn't just like you've got, an, and you know, there's, there's the rivalry between BYU and Utah. And there's plenty of Utah fans that detest, uh, you know, BYU fans. And there's plenty of BYU fans that detest Utah fans. And that's just over a football game. But you can see how the, um, the Jewish people would feel some real animosity towards, besides fear, they would feel some animosity towards the uh, Ninevites or towards the Assyrians. And so, you know, Jonah's real problem here is that, you know, he believes that God is infinitely merciful, but he hates the Assyrians and he wants God to destroy them. And, and he, that's where, you know, and this is, Bruce, were you reading from, um, Alter, which yeah. version were you reading from? I was okay. reading from Robert Alter, here, yeah. Yep, from Alter. It's great. And here it is in, I mean, it's pretty much the same thing, but here it is in the KJV. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. He wants to see these people destroyed because of the pain and suffering they've caused so many in the region, and uh, including the Jews, and, you know, horrible destruction is yet to come as well. And so he just wants God to destroy them. He does not want God to rescue them, although, you know, he believes that God is merciful and capable of rescuing them. But in his heart, he doesn't want them to be saved. Martin. It would be a little bit like the local bishop praying and being told, I want you to walk down the street and tell this Hell's Angel chapter that if they don't repent, I'm going to destroy them. And the bishop goes and delivers the message, and they show up at sacrament meeting next week. And the bishop's angry because he wanted God to get rid of uh, – you know, I, yeah. it's it's a little bit like that. They, they had such a horrible connotation to all the – don't follow that analogy too far. Uh, but but the point is... No, I, I'll, I'll give you a contemporary <laughs> on that. My my husband on his mission, the Eastern Atlantic States mission, was in a very... was in a ward in the D.C. area. I can't remember exactly where it was, but it was filled with very prestigious individuals, both in government, in, government, in politics, in the military, and this was a ward. And, well, but he and his companion were attracting one day, and they came across a house, and the door opened, and it was like, man alive, are they smoking weed? And it was a whole cabal of hippies. And they, you know, explained who they were and that they had a message, and they said, oh, yeah, far out, man, come on in. And so my husband and his companion went in, and they preached the gospel to them, and they invited them to church. The next Sunday, they showed up at church. And they were wearing just your typical hippie attire, you know, tie-dye, long hair, smelled like weed, because that's what they'd been smoking probably. Uh, Long story short, a number of them did end up joining the church. Nevertheless, after sacrament meeting, the bishop called my husband and his companion in and read them the riot act for bringing those people to church. (laughs) Because, you know, how dare you bring those people to church in that, you know, state that they were in. And actually, when we were first married, we got a call from 
um, one of uh, those couples, there were quite several of them that joined the church that were um, in Salt Lake to be sealed in the temple. And so, you know, but here was this group. It's like, how dare you? And yet, you know, God loved these kids just as much as he loved those yeah. people mm-hmm. in very powerful positions. If you get a chance, ask Reed if that was the Chevy Chase Ward. Uh, oh, okay. Because that sounds yeah. like the ward, which was word we were in. The uh, mm-hmm. and and the, then the interesting twist here is first you've got Jonah being upset about it, and then you've got this interesting little story uh, that ends on a question. It doesn't end with a resolution. Uh, you've got the Lord growing this plant to provide some shade for Jonah, and then He sends a worm to kill the plant. And Jonah's like, just kill me now, okay? You know, Lord, I hate my life. Just kill me now. And the Lord says, are you angry because the plant died? And he said, yeah. He said, explain to me why you're more upset about this plant than you were about more than 120,000 human beings. <laughs> yeah. Where is your priority? Ouch. And 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 this is this is this is why I think Jonah remains, the book remains an important thing. It's like... What are the things that you're really concerned about? Uh, it goes right back to your story, Reed's story. You know, the we're here to save souls. We're here about these people. Uh, we're not here. It's it's uh, as a friend of mine used to say. You know, would you rather be right or would you rather be happy? Uh, and that was that was the issue that Jonah faced. Yeah. He wanted to be right that they were going to be destroyed. He preached and so on and. Uh, he was very unhappy that 120,000 people said, oh, no, we're going to change. We repent. We don't want to be mm-hmm. destroyed. Martin. Yeah. People do become, th- this rings so true. People do become so upset and and uh, myopic about some of the strangest things. You know, it's it's the guy who mowed the lawn, didn't do a good job. The edge isn't right. So and so left dishes in the in the huge scheme of things. Nobody's going to show up and and at the gates of heaven, and they're trying to get in, and there will be a discussion about whether to do it because they left two dishes in the sink, or they didn't mow the lawn right, or edge it properly. The, the things that matter most are the point that God is making here at the end. To Jonah, which is, don't look beyond the mark, see what's important, focus on people, focus on people. These are my children. That's the real focus. And and I really like the way this ends. It it is, it would have made the ancient, and hopefully modern too, readers ask themselves that question, God, am I focusing in my life on the right things or the wrong things? Or how could I focus on better things? It's a little bit like the good, better, best. You know, the vine's probably on the, maybe even not quite to the good level, but but it's the same point, good, better, best. The 120,000 people, that's the best. It's interesting compared this with Job, because of course Job ends with a happy ending. Where, you know, after after the whole debate and then Lord calls Job on the carpet and then everything gets restored back to Job. He gets sons and daughters again and he gets wealthy again and he's cured and everything else. And this one ends with a cliffhanger uh, and just leaves that question hanging in the air for Jonah. 
Uh, it's like what 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 why why are you upset over this plant and not not grateful for having saved 120,000 people? And I think that's a challenge we need to be clear on uh, on on different levels in our own lives as far as not wanting so hard to be right about something that we are uh, upset when things turn out not the way we wanted to, but actually turn out for the better. Mm-hmm. It's, it's quite, it's quite, you know, it's kind of Shakespearean to me because Shakespeare, in his comedies, as well as his tragedies, his tragedies are like, by the time they're done, it's like, well, whoa. But even in his comedies, what he does is he presents the conditions, you know, he, this is what makes, this is what makes Shakespeare so enduring. This is what makes Jane Austen so enduring. They explore the human condition. And Shakespeare, particularly, he throws at you these huge conundrums that human beings have to deal with, and how you're going to respond. And you know, in Hamlet, and those, the response is not very kind or compassionate. And and the consequences are horrific for those individuals that don't respond appropriately. But Shakespeare poses the questions. And then it's left to the reader or the viewer. You should never read Shakespeare. You should watch it. But it's left to the viewer to ponder upon those things and to draw conclusions from it. And that's what we do here. I mean, here's here's how it ends. Should I not spare Nineveh, that great city, where there are 120,000-plus people? Why shouldn't I? Why shouldn't I spare those people? And so there it is. It just left hanging there, and we're forced to consider, and hopefully, and of course, it's rather didactic in the Bible, and hopefully we can conclude that God is a God of mercy, love, justice, but he loves his children, and he will do anything that he possibly can to save his children. And if that's his position, that should be our position as well. And that's a good ending to Jonah. Before we move on to Michael, let's talk about our sponsor. LDSAgents.com is a network of over 3,000 real estate agents serving Latter-day Saints across the United States and Canada for more than 20 years. They've been helping Latter-day Saints like you to find homes and safe neighborhoods with the right schools, including special needs and a temple not far away. Everyone at LDSAgents.com speaks your language. Why not let LDSAgents.com reduce the stress of buying or selling a home? Go on to their website and take a look at all that they can do for you. That's LDSAgents.com, LDSAgents.com. Okay, let's move on to Micah. Uh, Micah is a, is a prophet that we sometimes overlook. But the interesting thing is Micah, we, we, we talk about how much Isaiah is quoted in the Book of Mormon. Micah is quoted in the Book of Mormon as well and by the Savior himself. Uh he echoes some of, and we'll see, he echoes some of Isaiah's language, but actually has prophecies of his own. He preached during a period, uh, basically the period that encompassed the fall of Samaria, of, of the kingdom of Israel. Uh, he started while it was still in place, and by the time he finished, the uh, the ten tribes had been dragged off by Assyria and the, the other people dragged in. But you, you have a... Theme. This. This is. This is. Where I put it. I, I don't want to insult Mike. It's sort of Isaiah light. Uh, it's. It's a lot of Isaiah light prophecies. Is and like I said, there. There are some places where it's unclear if he's quoting Isaiah. Isaiah is quoting him, or they're both using the same source. But it's. It is the same sort of prophecy and the need to repent. Uh, 
within Israel, within Judah, and frankly, within some of the surrounding countries. So with that, uh, let's see, Martin, I'll I'll throw it to you for starters. (laughs) Sure. The context here is um, southwestern Judah and the general time frame that this is believed to have been um, written is dated by the kings that are involved here. Micah was active in Judah from before the fall of Samaria in 722 B.C. to um, the time of King Ahaz, who was in power from 735 to 715. Also, King Hezekiah, who lived from 715 to 687. So that's the general time frame of the date of composition here of, of this story or when what the setting is. And during this particular reign, um, you, you have this interesting description of the context, which, as you mentioned, Bruce, is very Isaiah-like. You have a prophet here who's dealing with bad leaders and people who also need to step up a a little bit better. And I've always quite liked Micah because it makes some wonderful points and it's not so long that you feel like you're looking at the Encyclopedia Britannica, which I would compare to Isaiah, and this is much simpler. Chris? Um. Those are great. Um, um, one of the things, Mike is very much in tune and sensitive to all the social ills of his day. He's not quite like Isaiah in the sense that Isaiah is very much immersed in the politics of the day. Um, he's not so deeply immersed in Jewish political life as Isaiah is. But this is a time when Israel is mentioned, you know, it's in an apostate condition. And so, you know, we're going to see the prediction of the fall of Samaria and the inevitable um, desolation of Judah. Um, Three interesting historical events kind of frame these chapters. And then he does a really fabulous job of specifying what the sins of these people are. And I think, you know, as he designates those sins, there's a lot of relevance for us to ponder upon today. You know, where am I with regards to these behaviors and practices? But you know, there's been um, Tiglath Pileser the third of Assyria military campaign against um, Aram, Syria, Philistia, parts of Israel and um, Judah. Um, um, they've defeated Gaza, Judah, Ammon, Edom, Moab. Paid tribute, but Israel. Um, it's worse for Israel. The Northern Kingdom lost most of its territory. Much of um, Galilee, Damascus fell in 732 and next to the Syrian Empire. Second thing, 722 to 21, Samaria is going to fall. Northern Kingdom is going to be conquered by Assyria. 701, uh, Judah is going to join a revolt against Assyria, and it's going to be overrun by um, King um, Sennacherib and his army, um, though Jerusalem is going to be spared. It's tumultuous. And, you know, I only share that because it just shows you how tumultuous politically it was during this period of time. And you can imagine the kind of emotions. I mean, we're sort of in our day, we're beginning to, who knows how bad it's going to get, but we're living in pretty tumultuous political times. And imagine, you know, the big decisions that political leaders need to make today 
and how much second guessing there is and how much criticism and how many bad decisions are being made. And so and 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 it causes a lot of unsettledness in people's lives. And then you join that to the terrible corruption and the wickedness during this period of time. You certainly do see strains of that in our world today. So it's very characteristic, I think, in many ways of the world that we um, live in. The lovely thing about Micah, I loved your comment. Um, 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 was it? No, it wasn't Bruce um, uh, Martin, where you mentioned, you know, that here we have this short book but it really is a compelling book with a lot of powerful messages. But we see he's got these the message of doom that, you know, you people are doomed because of your decisions and you are going to suffer. But then those last chapters are just sterling because they're, they're messages of great hope in the last days. And it's loaded with, I think, temple ideology, which is so, you know, just jumps right off the page for us as we read it. So, you know, there's that theme, judgment, deliverance. Um, and one of the things is we see a God here, he hates idolatry, he hates injustice, he hates rebellion, and he hates empty ritualism. And I love that, empty ritualism, because, you know, it's that whole question of do you show up on church on Sunday, do you take the sacrament, do you do those things, but it's basically a hollow shell, because inside you're sort of a cankered, you know, blighted vessel. And But then the Lord says, but I delight in pardoning penitent individuals. And so, and then, you know, prophesying the greater glory of Israel in the future. And it, he also really prophesies that, and this is this is spot on, particularly as members of the church for us, that this kingdom of Israel is going to reach greater heights when that messianic deliverer comes with the second coming of Jesus Christ. And there's where we're going to see the abundant mercy and love of the Savior Jesus Christ as we have gathered and as individuals are still troubled. But the Savior's love for his children of Israel is going to be, you know, a fascinating part of that future world. And he talks about all of that here in Micah. As per Chris's comments, the first three chapters are basically Micah's condemnation of Israel and Judah of the uh and and the, the the great the great sin is that everyone has turned away from the Lord they've forgotten their covenants they do everything for money the prophets mm-hmm. prophesy you know give give the people what they want to hear for money the judges take bribes to settle things a particular way the rulers take bribes and it is a situation where there is no room for for reformation. This is this is you know why you end up having Assyria come in and basically wipe out uh, uh, Samaria, the kingdom of Israel, and Judah gets a couple shots to try and repent, uh, and they they fail at that as well. But then we get starting in chapter four, and I'm I'm sort of pushing ahead here because our our hour is coming to a close. The chapter four. Is leads off with, and it shall happen in future days, and so now we're we're getting into the theme that that Isaiah and Micah share of the returning remnant of the Lord restoring the kingdom of uh, Israel in the last days, and we have the the language which we we all quote from Isaiah all the time, uh, from Isaiah two. But it's it's right there in Micah as well, that the mount of the Lord's house shall be firm founded at the tops of the mountains and lifted over the hills. Again, I'm reading Robert Alter's 
uh, translation. And the people shall flow to it, and many nations shall go and say, Come, let us go up to the mount of the Lord, into the house of Jacob's God, that he may teach us of his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion shall teaching come forth, and the Lord's word from Jerusalem. Now, this is a dramatic reversal from what's what's being predicted and what's going to happen right there in Israel and in Judah. And uh, it is the, the message of hope that, okay, it will come in the last days that the Lord is going to set things straight and that this will be the source of the Lord's judgment and revelation, that people will recognize the truth that Israel has and will gain from mm-hmm. it. Uh, mm-hmm. And we, 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 again, go into... Uh, some more, again, parallel stuff uh, with uh, spears and pruning hooks and so on. But he talks about the restoration and the gathering, which is which is such a critical theme in both Isaiah and Micah, that the Lord will not forsake Israel forever, that, uh, as Isaiah puts so beautifully, you know, uh, I have graven you on the palms of my hands, Uh that he will he will make this restoration, and again, the Savior quotes from Micah within the Book of Mormon itself. Chris, yeah, no, yeah, I love that that verses one and two are just absolutely exquisite, and they just scream temple, 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 the mountain of the house of the Lord. That's that's a that's a temple reference there, and then the law shall go forth of Zion, you know, and that that's what happens when we enter the doors of the temple. We learn about the things of eternity. That takes us far beyond, you know, our earthly existence. And then gather, verse 6, you know, I will gather her that is driven out. Verse 12, he shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. Um, you know, and so we're making this transition to, you know, you've been wicked. We're, we're going to catch up again here with your wickedness when Micah himself almost does a soliloquy here. But right here we're starting to see the Lord and his love and compassion for his children. Martin. Final comments. If you really would like to get at least a hint of the literary beauty of this book, take a look at it in the New Revised Standard Version or maybe the Contemporary English Version, both of which set it out in poetic prose. And uh, just one example, because we don't have much time, but there's a place in here when Micah tells the inhabitants of this city, uh, which roughly translated as the house of dust, to roll yourselves in the dust. And that doesn't quite work for us in English, but the the wording in, in Hebrew just sounds so beautiful. And he's telling the people of this place to do what the name of their city is, and, and it just it it means a lot. This is one that Professor Matt would really like. <laughs> Professor Bowen would just think this is cool wordplay. So, I, I can I jump in? You know, in verse six, I think you get this. This is the most probably in Micah. I think it's the most sublime um, counsel that Micah pens here. And he tells us what God expects of his children. Now, you know, he he catalogs afterwards their sins, scant measures, abominable, wicked balances, deceitful weights, violence, lies, deceitfulness. You know, he's cataloging their terrible sins. But then he says, 
um, he hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee? And he's going to tell us here there's three things we have to do. We have to be just, we have to love mercy, and we have to walk humbly with God. Which, you know, all of those, I mean, those are all sermons in and of themselves. But we have to be just and fair with others. We have to be merciful, as the Savior is merciful. And we need to be humble and to trust in God. And then in chapter 7, it's like I said, it's this Micah soliloquy, I call it. But he says, woe is me, this Micah, he's grieved. He's, his observations on the Israelites. You know, the good man is perished out of the earth. It, it references, you know, where can I find, you know, where can I find a righteous man? Um, you people do evil with both hands earnestly. The best of you are briars. Then he says, you can't trust in your friends. You can't put confidence in a guide. You, the son dishonors the father. The daughter rises up against her mother. But then here's what Micah says. He says, all right, we know that humans are imperfect we know that we live in wicked times he's saying and i would suggest we might see that today we do see that today among individuals that people can be so treacherous towards one another but here's what micah says but i know who you can trust he says in verse seven of seven therefore i will look unto the lord i will rate for the god of my salvation my god will hear me Verse 8, the Lord shall be a light unto me. And so he's willing to bear the indignation and the troubles and the challenges because he knows in whom he can trust. It's just exquisite. That those Chapters 6 and 7 are just beautiful. It is. One final comment. This reminds me so very much. Well, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jonah, and Micah all have, have this idea that we also hear in the Doctrine and Covenants, reprove betimes with sharpness, and then afterwards show an excess of love so you're not being esteemed as an enemy. And that's what God does here. He, This is sharp. This is very sharp um, reproof. No, no words are minced here. And yet afterward... He's talking about a bright, bright future and showing great, great love. He ends with this, uh, talking again about the uh, restoration of Israel uh, in the end days. Again, he shall have mercy on us. He shall cleanse us of our crimes. And you shall fling into the depths of the sea all of our offenses. Uh, which is a nice parallel with with. Jonah. So that's the end of our first uh, hour here of the Interpreter Radio Show. We're going to take a break and we'll be back after the top of the hour. <laughs> 